Hi everyone! In this new episode of Strzelka Institute podcast, Professor Sheila DeBratville from Yale University talks about fighting bias with posters, illustrations, and public art. I really would rather speak on differences because gender has been oversimplified, and I'd rather speak about the ways in which we can be more inclusive, more participatory, and also understand the, the diversity of audiences with which we can engage. This is why I didn't want to talk about gender. It's like incredibly bigger and more complicated than it was in, say, 1969. It's not just male and female. It's lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, intersex, and heaven knows what other combinations can be found. It's just not the only differences that are out there. They're usually paired with other differences that are even more operative. And I've done a lot of reading about the differences because since 1950, at least, many people who have been doing very fine research on both the, physic the physical aspects of difference as well as the emotional and personal and those parts of difference that have to do with both all the creative forces of human differences, the varieties and the complexity, as well as the inherent challenge that differences provide, because you have to be committed to bridging those borders. They won't just bridge by themselves. You have to find sneaky and wonderful ways to cross over. So I'm going to start with the 1970s because it was the time that I came back from living in Italy and working for Olivetti. They had just come up with a computer, the Programma 101. And I was in New York for about, I don't know, about a month before California Institute of the Arts asked if I would come and do the branding for a school that hadn't started. They were still hiring faculty. And the first thing that I did was something that I didn't write, but as, as you can see, and I didn't even show it to anybody because I had he in it. <laughs> and I felt embarrassed that it, that it had a he. But then now you could call it they, and it would, it would cover everybody, and it would, it would not have been a problem. So I can show it, and because it, it's really remarkable that this person who spoke to me about it, that he would actually mention exactly what I feel right now, which taste and style, it just isn't enough. You really do have to know as much as you can find out about, particularly ecology, human needs, as well as the ways in which technology is working. And so that's why a piece of that old uh, PCB that I found a whole bunch of them in a garbage pail in 1969 is included for technology and a jack for playing and a acorn, which is a generative aspect of how trees grow. Things that are done, and I'm fascinated by the way things are made. Because it's an old trope of modernism that how thing, a thing is made is part of what it means. And the fact that this was done by shrink wrapping where you print the words on a board that has holes in it, you put the objects where you want them, and then you heat up the plastic and it's sucked onto to the page. And that's how many of the things that are in supermarkets in the United States are made, are sold that way. And I was interested in aligning myself with what everyday people do. They go to supermarkets, they would recognize the way the thing was made. At least that was my fantasy as a designer. I didn't check to see if that's how people understood it. Another thing that I had to do at that time, which I was interested in doing, people who were running CalArts had arranged with the people in Minnesota to, who would put out Arts and Society magazine to have a special issue on the way this school was 
came together. However, I was a whole big 28 years old and I really didn't know that much about the school because it hadn't even started. And so what I did is with my friend Mary Ann Partridge, we went to the Associated Press, which at that point didn't charge you for pictures, and chose pictures that represented what had been happening for the decade in which the school had been planned. And I did, decided to just start it with television and print. It opens up and it just goes through pages in which there are applications from students and what the students themselves said, also parts where the dean and the president speak, different faculty things. I chose images of, of the proliferation of similar houses all over the countryside around CalArts. So in a way, it just shifted toward all the people and rather than giving you a list of what you could then choose and go to. And it shifted the way people would use the magazine, or at least it was my fantasy of it. And this, this kind of reshuffling of center and periphery, private and public, in order to create a new sense of a mixing place and subjectivity is something I really didn't know I was doing at the time, but it, as things moved on, I began to see it. And I think that's true for everyone. At the beginning of your professional life, you just do the work and then you figure out what that work is about. And so seeing the work that you make tells you what you're interested in, especially when somebody's not telling you what to do. And this happened also just in the same year. It was the International Design Conference in Aspen, and they asked me to do a journal. And I thought, a journal? I just had a child. I had so many other things I was doing. I really wanted not to do a journal. So I decided to do something that would be done after those five days there. And that is really the reason. However, the actual form language that I chose is very much the same as what I'm showing you before and we'll show you after, of turning it over to, this, to the audience. Everybody who got this packet got this sort of trapezoidal shape. I gave them the layout of the newspaper pages so they would know where, that their piece would be turned over and put into that format. And then I, I pasted it up that way. And so the entire magazine is made of the audience's feelings, interests, what they didn't like, what they did like, and then also pictures. We gave out cameras that allow them to take pictures and then bring all those things to me the night before I had to lay it out. So everyone got this newspaper that was done in a way that I'd never done anything before. And I think it's, again, that freedom to do it any way that I came up with has really been very helpful to me to figure out what I'm doing. And then there was another newspaper that I was asked to do. It was uh, also a special issue. It was of Every, Every Woman magazine. And at that time, I was in a, what's called a consciousness-raising group, which is a group of, of women. It's, it's some, I've been in one where there's a group of men and women, in which you have a subject, and each of you speak to that subject with the same, within the same amount of time. It would be five minutes each, no matter what. And so I, everyone in the magazine was given the same amount of space, a two-page spread, and whether you were a teacher or you were a student, and whatever level you were. And that's this just how it shows you one of them, which says, after conscious raising, what? What do I do now? I, I had read this book in 1916, I had read it in 1970, but the thing is that it didn't really click until I realized that it's not who he was teaching, but what he said about teaching was exactly how I thought about students, and I hadn't even ta taught yet, that 
the thing that the, the next uh, teacher worthwhile from his perspective, his name is Paulo Freire, he's from Brazil, was that it makes it possible for students to become themselves in their work, how, how to help them make themselves and their work overlap. So at that point, I actually created a class in CalArts that was just for women. If you want to know more about that, I can tell you because I had a lot of trouble with Victor Papanek who didn't want me to do it because I was the only woman faculty. I said, then hire some other women. He said, the boys won't be able to have you as a teacher. I said, this is not a problem. There are other women you can hire. One of the things that we did was uh, there was this kind of crazy way in which little girl, girls around 11 to 13 were taught about menstruation and they were was filled with sort of Disney-like drawings. And I think there must be something better we can do. So as a group, we decided to make videos. We made a series of three, one was with all boys, one was with all girls, one was boys and girls, one was with men and women in their 20s and 30s, and one was with older women. And those have been shown quite a lot. They didn't get shown in classrooms, which is what we hoped would be done, but they've been shown in museums as part of the feminist movement when it gets shown as a museum thing. And then I quit the job at CalArts, and with two other women, we started a feminist studio workshop. We can talk about why I don't use the word feminist anymore, but that's not for now. And it folded up, and women came from all over the United States to be part of the Feminist Do Workshop, and we were looking for a place to have our workshop. We found this building that CalArts had left when they moved to Valencia, and I negotiated for renting this building for very little money. And I did poster, Maria Carras did the photograph of women running to the building, and then all the organizations that helped us pay the $3,000 rent on the building. But one of the things that was wonderful about it is it had a courtyard. One of the things that was not wonderful about it is that my colleague Arlene, who was Raven, who was one of the three of us, had said, why don't we call it the woman's building? I, I read about Sophia Hayden, who was the architect who designed the, the building at the Columbian Exhibition, and I, I thought that was fine. Aha. Then fast forward to the 80s, which I would every now and then have to do something from the present. I learned from my colleague, Hazel Carby, who's an African woman from Britain. Women who ran it were absolutely against any black women participating in the leadership of it. And so that racist aspect of the women's building would make me not want to call it that if I had known more about it at the time. And I was asked by American Institute of Graphic Arts uh, what they asked 100 designers to do something on the subject of color. And I decided that it's very arbitrary to ask that, but also that I would choose the color pink and make a, a, a poster of it in a way. And this was a, the, the, the um, film negative they gave me because they lost these, these um, donations from the 100 of us. God knows, they moved, the AIG moved and suddenly they didn't have them. But they did send me a diapositivo. I was still using Italian then, it was a negative of it. And so at the women's building, we printed them. And you can see there were empty ones so that people could write in their own versions of what pink meant to them. And there I am, gluing them up in the streets of Echo Park in Los Angeles, again with Jason. He's a little bit bigger then. And explaining to the people who came by 
that they could write on it. It was okay. They could write it and participate with it. And it's been in exhibitions where we printed 500 of them. So been exhibitions where people could write it in the gallery or whatever they want. So they could touch the art, <laughs> considering that's art. I don't know what you would think about that. And I also, at that period of time, was involved in the women's building uh, to have different, like women in writing, women in film, and women in, in design, to find out where we might be going in the next decade. And this was the, the poster, if those of you who know um, the Italian firm Super Studio, they did a lot of things with grids. And for them, grids meant the even distribution of goods and services. For me, it was more the kind of flatness of, of Los Angeles, and the palm trees meant all these women, this eye bolt as a symbol, <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. So this, with the eyeball, we're coming to this conference in Los Angeles. And then I made these necklaces of, that I found. This is an eyeball. You can make them yourself, at least in the United States, for under $2 then. And you could do it again now. It's really, you just have to put some glue so that the bolt doesn't work itself off. So you have a very cheap necklace. But it became something that meant something to other women in a way that I never knew. So I recently had these two women who were in, in Stockholm, who Michaela and Moa Christensen, who asked permission if they could use my eyeballs. And they, and they made a six foot tall one that's hanging in the town in northern Scandinavia, and it's called Hello Sheila. <laughs> and then they showed videos that were taken the first day at the, woman, at the women's building of the women who had signed up for the feminist studio workshop, and they are each telling why they came, including me, all of us. Then the building was sold, and I went shopping for another building that would not cost more than $3,000 a year, and found this building that had been Standard Oil Company of California's building, but the neighborhood had changed, and so the insides were stripped, and it was a warehouse. And so we spend a lot of time building walls to create some of the spaces in it. People were, my, I, I know these ch the children who were there, children were there, the, the more radical women who were, had some mixed feelings about the cultural aspect of the women's building, but they came and they built the buildings of the dark room, the walls of the dark room. And I tried to do what, what Hazel Carby was suggested. I have friends in the black community, and my friend Betty Saar, who's an African-American artist, came to give a lecture. And as a result, a lot of African-American women came to the women's building. And then we, we did posters. This poster is important for me to tell you about because this whole idea of asking a question, using a question mark, ask something of the viewer, and makes the viewers, I hope, think about their answer to that question. If I had a piece of paper to go up in a public space, what would I put on it? And so I've taught a lot of things that have to do with what you sh could put on a paper that would fulfill your needs and perhaps some other people's as well. But I wanted to say that the graphic center was the, probably the heart of the building and that people could print on a rotor print, they could print on a Chandler and Price, they could print on an offset machine. And this is a, a story of incest that was told to Sue Mayberry, and she made the booklet about incest. Rita Wright was cleaning Amanda Cook, but she also participated in a 
project that I did called Private Conversations and Public Announcements, which I asked the students to all go out into the city of Los Angeles, and if there's some place where you feel uncomfortable, go into the, find out who runs that event or that place or that store, and see if you can put a poster up in the, in the window, or you can put the poster up in some way in the space. And in that way, as I say, you know, it makes it possible to blend a person's personal feeling in a public space. It breaks down the connection of it always being public, but rather that you could have that kind of connection. And so she, this is two main streets that Rita did about the place in Pasadena where on one side is the black ghetto and on the white side are the rich white people. And, and so you're seeing that I'm trying to have them take a perceived hostile space and make it neutral through a kind of personal energy and personal sense of your own efficacy. I have these, su these subtitles in case this stays here and somebody wants to look at it. At any rate, now the 80s and 90s changed some things for me because in the middle of the 80s, a thing called Percent for Art was passed in Los Angeles, which allowed the government to require that if you used pro any public money to build that building, you had to have a certain percent of the money that get, they had to be used for public art. And I saw an opportunity that I could move from ephemera, which is how I regarded all the printings, so that, that they're being shown in galleries throughout Europe is really amazing to me because I only have two or three of any of these things. Uh, because I, I thought they were just for that occasion. I didn't see them as having a longevity. But things that are built in the public sphere, I thought, had longer longevity. So um, I, I, I left the women's building so that the next generation could run it. And, but I came back whenever they needed me. And I taught this class, private conversations, public announcements, again. The women themselves at the women's building put this idea on. And then I, on my own, I landed up being involved with um, inserting things about the 84 Olympics into the new LA Times. And I chose, and they let me do it, to not show who won anything, but how the, the, the athletes themselves hugged and kissed each other because they really feel connected to each other. And they're really not as competitive as you would think. They, they're doing it for their own bodies and for their own selves. And so um, they let me do that. And then um, a friend of mine uh, was involved in renovating a building into a new market. And he asked me if I would design the construction fence that went around the market. And so I asked the students at Otis, where I taught for a bit, if they would uh, give me their drawings of, of vegetables and other kinds of edible things, but also because they came from so many places, they could interview the people at the old age home across the street who spoke different languages about memories they had around food. So this is one memory where, you know, garlic reminds me of the hungry years when my mother rubbed it on a piece of bread and I, I would imagine this, a sausage sandwich she gave to me to take to school during the years of plenty. Then the percent for art passed, as I said, and I was asked to do a project about an African-American woman who had walked across the United States um, and 
was part of a Mormon, the Mormon um, activity with, with people of African descent. And, but he didn't realize that California was a free state. So she got her freedom in, in court and she lived at this site. And at the trial where she got the, the, her freedom, she was asked to be the midwife for a doctor who was at the trial. And as a result, she made money. She also started the AME church. So she's known to the black community, but she wasn't known to other communities. And that is part of what I would hope you will all begin to understand, is that the borders between people of different races, different nationalities, different sexualities, are the places where you can be inventive and make connections so that we're not all left in these little mini groups that don't know anything about each other. And it's a better way to move than to move surrounded by people just like yourself. So one of the things that was lucky about this is my friend Betty Saar and I both did projects at this site. Betty Saar is an artist and this is the last public art she did. And I'm there, I consider myself a designer, but I don't care what you call me as long as I get to do the thing I wanna do. So I'm not too fussy about what I'm being called. And so the, I did a project that was a whole wall and Betty did one that was interior so that she could call it the house of the open hand. Whereas my project is about time and place. Here is the whole wall. I had never done anything like this before, but I did know that concrete was very receptive and that it was possible to do. And so I really, and this defined the space. Um, and you could see Biddy Mason's face from, from Spring Street, because that's the pathway from the, from the building. Um, and it was to my surprise that, you know, I had these, it's more like a book in a way than, than the kind of mural I might do now. But at any rate, there's a picket fence. It's not made out of um, wood because you take forever to, to pick the wood out of the forms. So it's made out of um, styrofoam, but it looks like a picket fence anyway. And there's her deed to the land. She owned the land. And she walked across, as I said, the things that I said, I told, told, told them, anybody who was there. And people were still enjoying going there. My, this is my friend Angela's sister and her son looking at the uh, sort of doctor's bag and the things that were carried in the, midwife, in the midwife's bag. This just shows you how incredibly receptive concrete can be because I went around with a machete knife cutting leaves from um, different agave plants and that's so why I built an agave plant that allow you to see it as because the agaves were there there's a de yeah Los Angeles was a desert there was nothing there except plants like that and so and so one of the the um, the tiles that are in there was a surprise how many people were of African descent among the people who came at the very beginning of Los Angeles. And then before, um, I, there was another project and it was in Los Angeles and it was to be, they were gonna do something, wanted something done to tell people the story of Japanese people in um, this part of downtown LA. And when I was interviewed by Miho, um, I asked him, you know, why would you choose me? I'm a, I'm a first generation American. My parents are not from the United States, but I'm not Japanese in any way, shape or form. And he said, we want people who are not Japanese to know the story of the Japanese. So I'm certainly willing to do that. 
Um, and so, I, but at that time, I actually moved to the East Coast um, because Yale gave me tenure as a professor. And so I, I had originally said no, but then my husband said, why would you say no so quickly? Why don't you go through the process and see if you would like to do it? I said, are you willing to move back to the East Coast? He said, I would be willing if you want to go. So at any rate, I landed up going. Um, it was definitely difficult. We can talk about that later. Um, but I, there was a part of the city that was being going to be renovated that had become in, in sort of emptied. And you can see the quality. This is a firehouse, and it's really a mess. And so uh, Mark Zaretsky wrote this article about me for the paper. And I had done this um, set of stars. There was $25,000. I made 24 stars. And they're all very different. I went and got a census account so that every single ethnicity in the in the city would be have the amount of stars that the, of the people who are here, so that they would have somebody to go and look at look for down there. And um, they're still there. They don't look as good as they were, but they, they're still there. Um, and then this project um, th that I, I showed you, Little Tokyo. Um, was about the sidewalks, and it was actually shown here in Moscow in 2005 in the House of Architects because it was part of an exhibition of public art in the United States, and CEC Arts Link sent me as a live person to come with the, that show. It was on you know, my birthday. We drank a lot of good vodka. But I wanted to, oh, I should go back because um, I wanted you to pay attention to this, these two marks. One's a flat line, and the other one is a, a character, in, uh, um, actually in Japanese. And it tells you that she's a, that, that this is an Issei, a first-generation Japanese. And so they're Issei, Nisei, Anseis are all, it, all of those generations, four generations of Japanese are all reflected in, on the sidewalk. There are quotes from all those generations. And then what, what I can go on with, in front of every one of, um, along this part here where the, you see the decades are marked out and then there's one dark decade where they were all removed. And then their quote, here's where the quotes are. And then there were objects, wrapped objects, because a lot of things in Japanese culture are wrapped. And this is the kind of trunk that the Japanese came with their stuff in. And then, the, then they used when they went to the camps. And this is what's in front of each of the doorways, some of the people who were there and what they did. And so when there's a thing like um, Yasujiro Kawasaki buys this property in his Nisei daughter's names, in the next one it explains that there was actually a law that was passed that you couldn't, the native Japanese could not own property, but your daughter could. Then uh, there are the parts where our, our government um, we are the president at the time, who was generally good, but he didn't bother to come to the West Coast. And when people on the West Coast said that the Japanese in, in Los Angeles were participating in the war and were part and should be punished for that, um, they sent people out. So there's a thing that says uh, the raids of all the Issei's associations because they they you know they joined associations from from the part of Japan in which they came looking for evidence of disloyalty that I never found. On the other hand, many said to me that I'm as American as apple pie, 
<laughs> this is why that, that image is in the sidewalk. And then they wrapped up, people who didn't have trunks just wrapped up their stuff. And then the last thing is where in 1942, the US executive order 9066 forced all Nikkei out of their homes and into internment camps all through the West. And this was not done before there were movies about it. It was only known to the Japanese. This is the first time anyone who wasn't Japanese found out what we had done. And then for some students who were here. <laughs> so this, this image on the left, Ivan Chemayev, who was a graduate of the early days of Yale, and it was a very famous designer of in a co company called Chemayev and Geismar, also someone who graduated from Yale. He made this, this um, advertisement for the International Design Conference in Aspen in 93. And our students looked at that and said, you gotta be kidding. This is a, a spread eagle woman, what are you doing here? And they made their own version, which is they just took the parts and re reorganized them different interpretation, but they didn't stop there. They made a brochure, and the brochure was put out in, at the conference, and it actually talked to the ways in which the anonymity of this woman and the treatment was really in, in, inexcusable. But of course, one woman, because the, they, had, they had Ivan's image on all the um, ID, identification uh, systems, decided she'd put a dress on her. <laughs> she did. Oops, I should go back one. So, and also stu students did a sort of posters that they put up that people could fill out. These were empty, and people just put in that they were a jock or a homophobic person or an Asian lesbian or I'm not your fantasy, and then that I'm naughty or I like to play or I'm a girl or I'm dyke or I'm queer. So that, that people could write whatever they wanted as part of... Um, Gay Pride Week. And then I, there was an RFQ for a project in Boston at the Boston State House. And I felt that they asked me as one of the, th it's usually one of three people to make a proposal. And I thought, given that's about women, I should connect with another woman. And I asked Carrie Mae Weems, but she wasn't free at that time. So then I asked Susan Sellers, who's about 20 years younger than me to do it with me and we did it together. And it's about six different women and the ways in which they um, acted on the inequities that existed or among the, the, the very few, uh, two African people of African descent, how, it, how they uh, organized for women of color to get together through um, printed media. And we chose to, we were given this wall, so we didn't choose the site, but we did choose to make all those women out of bronze because all the other guys, are, the guys are all in bronze, why couldn't there be women in bronze? And we put um, legal, made legal wallpaper because every single law actually exists and there's a wonderful law school at Yale and I could go down and find the actual laws. And then we put, made the wallpaper out of the laws that were made due to these women's activism. Um, and then I have, a, this is a close-up, so you could, I have this idea that they're talking to each other when we're not there, which <laughs> is probably not true. So this is Lucy Stone and Dorothea Dix. And the next project is also has this kind of either some way of making 
making the boundaries between a group of people be unified in some way that you can see all the differences. In this case, Queens is an unbelievably diverse place. A lot of um, new immigrants, when they came to New York, moved there because it was less expensive. And they had a very um, active woman, councilwoman. So um, this is across the street from the project that I was asked to do, like, that I won not because the librarians like me, for a brand new library. And one of the things about libraries is that not every country, and I don't know about here, about it, has public libraries. So it, it felt to me that it was important that the people who walked by knew that they were welcome in this new building with all the glass walls and everything. And so my proposal had to do, it's called Search Literature. And I chose the literature that would be known by each of the group by going to the different groups to find out what was the story you felt all of the people in your country probably have read. And for you guys here who speak Russian, it's, um, um, uh, it's the gray wolf and gray wolf. Gray, you know, Firebird and the Gray Wolf. The, yeah, Firebird and the Gray Wolf by Zarevich is his last name. I forgot the first name. At any rate, there's a there's I went to, but I went to the places where the people from those countries were, so that I didn't make a mistake in, in spelling it. Then I had to go and check it with everybody at Yale who spoke those languages to make sure I'd spelled everything right. So because once it's etched into granite, I'm in trouble if it's wrong. So it's still there, it's still doing it. Yeah, it's Ivan Sarvich, Firebird and the Gray Wolf. I want to make sure that you knew that you were represented there. Actually, people have sent me email telling me there was so, how much they appreciated seeing their, their country's um, literature featured in this library. Libraries have changed, and that's a whole other subject. They, they're not just books. They really function as community centers for the neighborhood. Here's a similar situation, one that was more difficult for me to do than this other, these other ones because it was the, the Rhode Island Department of Labor and Training, their new site was at a formal workhouse where people were treated really badly. Their cities didn't want them their, and sent people there, you know, pregnant women who weren't married, somebody who might have been autistic, any reason to get rid of the people that weren't functioning the way they wanted to, they were just sent to the workhouse. And when I went to the um, library where the books were kept for the workhouse, 90% of the people who were in the workhouse tried to leave. That's a huge percentage of people who wanted out. At any rate, this was a time when workers who had been working with their bodies were, be, were out of work and there was nothing, they couldn't get another job. And so the, for some crazy reason, the Department of Labor and Training thought they would teach them comp computation. Well, not everybody is good at computation at that point in their life. And so I felt like this was an impossible situation. And so I came up with this idea of, of making seats which could be read differently from above and above, like, um, just work, just pay, pay well, you know, depending on where you, you were sitting, because you, you, there are three floors and you can see down on these seats as well. And because um, granite seats are cold in winter, we made cushions, take a break, out to lunch, back to work, 
those are all the cushions. And then this is a, a what's called a lazy Susan table. You can move all the different rings. The outer ring are the, is the hardest to move, but the inner one is easiest. So you can align yourself with workers or managers or um, immigrants or whatever, and then keep switching them back until you says the thing you want to say. And one of the things that really made me happy to have how this has worked and it's still there and they still talk to me because those trees we planted because the workhouse had made apple tree orchards have to be removed because the water, it's the, the weather has changed, let's put it that way. And they have to move those out of there. And they wondered if it was okay if they could move some of the chairs into those places. I said, sure, just don't touch the table. He said, we all love the table, don't worry. Yeah, fine. Um, and so, and here is one of those wonderful moments that happened unplanned, where there's difference in age, difference in gender, difference in color, and they're all arguing about whatever it is they did. Then the two, you know, the 21st century arrives, and I was sent to Yekaterinburg. Um, because what, an arts administrator I had worked with said, I can talk to anyone even if I don't know their language. I don't know if that's true, um, because it was hard on the students um, and the a translator to help me. So I was asked to uh, come and look at two sites and choose which one I wanted to work in the um, concrete factory that makes concrete block. And I chose the water tower because it was made of lots of little rocks and it was really impossible to, not so easy if you're not stable, to get into the what's now a, a sort of thrift shop. And um, this is the group that worked with me. Um, Artem took all the pictures and Fyodor is there and Tanya. And Anastasia is the woman with the sweater. She's the translator and there's me. And I, I had asked the students to write what's called Shastushki. Well, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I'd read about it in a book on perestroika on the way on the plane. And I thought that because they could be written, those poems, four-line poems, can be written about any subject, I said, you can write what you want as a, a, from this part of it. And as long as you use a question mark on some one line or maybe a, a, a ellipsis, three, three dots on another, to leave it open to the viewers to think about it. And then at middle of the night, I realized there's no way I can get it done to cut out all these letters from fiber, from the, um, uh, forgot the name of the stuff. Anyway, to cut it out. So I almost went to see the arts administrator and say if it was okay. And then I realized it's four o'clock in the morning. He doesn't want to hear from me. I better just figure out something else. And so I chose to use only the first letter of every word, but leave the space for the other characters. And in that way, um, uh, the students who were there at the opening wrote in their words. And then it rained, of course. There was a kiosk nearby we could get chalks. It was really easy. And um, when it rained, the, the, those letters disappeared. And then Arseni wrote me and told me that the, the poets in the city had adopted this piece and were writing poetry using those first words. So I felt very good about it. Who knows what state it's in because to do something in concrete in five days 
is dangerous because concrete needs time to cure, and there really wasn't time. I mean, Sunday we had off, and I went to the ballet. You have a great ballet in your Katrina. And so and that's the only day that nobody was doing anything, and the next day was the opening. So I don't know if it's still there. Here's, here's Kendall Henry, who was my artist illustrator, and me at Arseni, and the other guy, I don't remember his name, but he's the owner of the concrete factory. And we're in front of the doors to the project. And Kendall was the one who um, got me into that because he worked for the city at the time. And um, this was the renovation of the, the, the A line in New York City is the longest line. It goes from the very top of, of um, Manhattan all the way out to the bottom. And so I think I got this project because I grew up in Coney Island, which is the bottom of, of the line. And I know that the, that the, what's the last um, stop for some people is the first stop for some people, and they're starting their day at the beginning. So I used the words at the start, dot, 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 and at the start, at long last, dot, 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 because they're, they're both happening for people who are coming into it. And they're made, it's made out of... Um, what's called Italian um, tessera. It's like a, it looks like diamonds, but I mixed it with um, broken glass as well. And so it catches the light from the lighting. I have no, I had no, con no ability to change. And I've, after those last, those last dots are 207, because the 207th Street um, quotes from people in the neighborhood from all different backgrounds about all different subjects. Um, some of them are by a Native American who I really feel identified with her because I don't like doing anything for show. I feel uncomfortable in giving a, a real lecture where you write it all out and you read it to people. Um, and she, they used to come up to the park that's near there and perform the powwows that they would usually do among themselves and they did it for public and she really didn't like the way that felt. And then there's um, Hercilia Restrepo, who's the wife of Julio, who actually was on the, t on the team that chose me. And she's talking about loving being a, a Latina, but she happened to come during um, the, you know, a, a, a celebration that was really Irish and she saw everybody wearing green and she just loved how diverse the neighborhood is. So there were many different perspectives on the same subject from different groups of people. You can imagine 207 tiles. It's not hard to do that, except it took a lot of, took a lot of trouble to interview all these people and get it down to the number of words. And yet that had to get everything signed, so it was okay. And they, uh, then a wonderful thing happened. Um, I get, uh, the school that I went to college in gave me an award, and I didn't feel well, and I really didn't want to talk about anything either. And so I, I at one point just said, does anybody know Inwood? Because that's the neighborhood on uh, Chewing Center Street. And this woman got up and she said what she says here, and then she sent it to me in an email, which is that she loves the I long, at long last, because she says that usually I'm dragging home long past dinner, and when I get to that wall, I look at it and sigh and repeat the words. It makes me feel that the universe is empathetic with my feelings about the day. So it's, that, it's like incredible validation. I don't go back to the sites to find out how people are doing it, but then when someone offers you 
something which you really hope would happen. It's pretty terrific, I have to say. And actually, where you enter, it says at the start, and where you leave, it says at long last, and those are Kendall's feet. Um, then, actually, things changed, and the, the percent for art ordinances that were passed, cities just in America just didn't have the money for it. It had to be then organizations that had money that hired you. And I have... A, I haven't done projects where the organizations paid me to do it. But the fact that cities didn't have the money was really difficult. And I decided instead of responding to a request for qualifications, I would make proposals to places where I knew something was needed that, that wouldn't happen. So um, I've been going to China very often because I have friends there. And so I always, there was a friend who, um, it, who's Hong Kong Chinese, and he said, well, you come, come to Hong Kong first and then go to mainland. So I've been to Hong Kong every three years for th three months for some reason. And so I know the culture and I know the people, and I know a teeny-weeny, itsy-bitsy amount of, of Putonghua. So I realized, in, um, anyway, so I wrote a note to Leslie Liu, and I said, listen, I'd like to come and do something with conjunctions, because now I realize that in Chinese, you can't put a conjunction anywhere you want. And I think it's more like in Russian. It has to be where it's connecting one idea with another idea. And so I thought there might be places in your new building where I could put conjunctions, and people would make connections across it. And evidently, the president of the school said, no, 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 make her come here and be here and see what it is before she decides what she's going to do. So they brought me to um, this new building that was really pretty fantastic done by very young French architects. And I saw the students were like lying on the ground looking at their um, cell phones and their um, computers, and they had no place to hang out with each other. So I saw that there was this room that they hadn't developed, and I went to the president, and I said, what are you planning for that room? He says, I don't have a plan yet, what do you have? I said, well, I think the students would really enjoy having a lounge where they can just hang out with each other. He said, well, go make it, and he'll support it. So I made a lounge with beanbag chairs and low tables. And then along the one length of it, I also put a moving wall that allows you to type into your cell phone, connect.respond at vtc.hk.net, and you could write anything in there in either English or um, um, and it's actually um, traditional characters because that's what they use in Hong Kong. And so you could write like, I don't like Sheila and I hope she never comes back or something like that. And it would go down the entire wall and twice and then it would disappear. So nothing would be collected, you could say anything. And then something really wonderful happened, um, which I hope it's gonna work. These two guys came Mm, would you tell me that I could do this? Will this do it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So these two guys got up and they made it look like they were moving it, <laughs> which is one of those wonderful things that happen that you can never predict that just make you really happy you were there. And, and they're really both really wonderful people. So I thought you would enjoy that because the things happen that you don't always expect. 
And this is the latest project that I propose, and it's actually in New Haven, and it's an underpass that you have to go under to go to the train or to go into the city. And why they would let a, an underpass that is so uh, disgustingly dirty, that is so narrow, that is so dark to exist, I don't know, for all these years. So I finally made a proposal to the city planning people to let me widen it so that somebody could go with a carriage or a bicycle or a skateboard by you and you wouldn't get knocked down, nor would you get ripped off, which is actually what happened there. So a lot of the wealthier people would, would never walk to the train station because they didn't want to get ripped off. And I knew the people who ripped them off because they were living in the neighborhood adjacent to this place. So at any rate, when I proposed it, they said, we really like what you're doing, but we don't know if we have any money. Could we just do the lighting? I said, nah, that's like lipstick on a pig. You can't do that. So they said, it took them a while, and then they said, okay, we'll do it, but it's gonna be ripped. And in an effort not to get involved with the whole other process, we'll wrap it into the city planning plan. So it's actually supposed to be done, and it's, what I think about it is that people can, you know, those, those little dots are like amp ellipses, but they're also emotion detectors. So if somebody walks by, what's on the ground is seen. Um, the, the, the six um, spotlights are to encourage people to act out on the way they go to the, the train, which they may or may not do. We may, I may bring a friend who is a from, graduate of a program who's a hip-hop dancer and have him do a, an event there. That, because people, it's not someplace that people stay. It's, they're on the way. They're on the way to the trainer, they're on the way to the city. They're not reading anything. There's no point in putting words there. Had to be done with light. And hopefully it'll be done. And moving right along. Here we are back to the end, which I hope you are seeing some of the ways I found out to be inclusive to uh, enable participation of people by either marks or by lighting or by um, inviting them. Um, and that there has to be, the diversity of people has to be bridged. And the only way that's gonna happen is if you find a way to cross a border. You cannot stay in a group just like yourselves and think this is gonna happen. You have to see what you have in common with some other group that's not like you that you can cross over with. And graphic design can do it. It doesn't have to be a permanent thing, as you can see by the print things that I've done. So you, I'm sure you can find your own way now. And certainly interactivity offers a lot of ways to do it as well. And so we're back to this. Please look for ways to connect. It's really worth it. That's all for today in Stjalka Institute podcast. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and see you in two weeks.